This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset, a daily dose of what's happening in Chicago and around the world. Elon Musk bought Twitter just over two weeks ago, and since then, my timeline has turned into the Wild West. Some Twitter users are getting ready to jump ship like it's the final hours aboard the Titanic. But others rely on Twitter for their careers and for connection. So what's next for those communities? Brianne Bennis hosts a podcast about chronic illness. It's called No End in Sight. She also created the hashtag NEISVOID, which has become sort of a Twitter base camp for people with chronic illnesses. So tell us about this hashtag, NEISVOID. What is it and how did it start? That's a great question. So on the one hand, it's a hashtag, which, you know, anybody can make and you can just use it on Twitter or any other social media and it doesn't really do anything. (laughs) Um, So I just want to get that out there that making a hashtag is hard, but getting people to use a hashtag is harder. Yes. So it is a hashtag for connecting people with chronic illness and disabilities, including and especially people who aren't diagnosed yet and are still getting oriented, basically. Um, So I made the hashtag originally in 2020, so it's been pretty active for about two years Okay, with a few hundred posts a day, usually now, not at the beginning, obviously. Um, And the kind of backstory for how it came to be is that I, before chronic illness in my previous life, before 2017, I used to work in social media marketing and online marketing and then in my uh, private life, I guess, I co-founded and co-facilitated storytelling event called Stories We Don't Tell in Toronto that still happens, but I'm not there anymore. Yeah. So I basically had all of these conversations one-on-one with people that I barely knew about some of the hardest things that they'd been through as we were um, doing workshops for this event and then the event itself. So it was primarily for people who didn't have experience writing and speaking. So that's a little background. Okay. And then, yeah. So in in your experience, then tell us why chronically ill and and disabled people look to Twitter for for community? Yeah. So in 2017, for me, that's when I stopped working because I basically got too sick to work and I didn't know why. And so I started tweeting the same way that I had been doing the storytelling stuff. I was like, I'm just going to try to connect with people. I'm going to be vulnerable about what it's like. I'm not going to get into fights with people. And so for me, I started using Twitter because I was too sick to work. I didn't know what was going on yet. My social life had really deteriorated because I was too sick to participate. Without work, I wasn't seeing people. So I started tweeting about what's it like to be at home? What's it like to be isolated? What's it like to be navigating this? And even then, before the pandemic, it turned out that there were, you know, hundreds of other people, thousands of other people who were also 
mostly homebound or bedbound from chronic illness who are also using Twitter. And so that was the context that we kind of all started connecting that way. And the one other thing I'll say about, about it, about what attracts people, is I think pe- when people are really sick and home in bed a lot of the time, often even TV or reading is too much stimulus. So people spend a lot of time on their phones because you can put it in dark mode, you mm-hmm. can kind of squint at it, you can read really short tweets without getting into an article that might be overwhelming. So. Lots of background info. Yeah. Well, you know, right now, many people are concerned, Brianne, about the future of moderation uh, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. What role does moderation play on that side of Twitter that you use? And are you worried? Yeah. So the chronic illness community and the disability community, you will not be surprised to hear, um, are really vast. So anybody can become chronically ill at any time. Anybody can become disabled at any time. And that means that people who belong to all communities also belong to this community. So moderation on Twitter, what I'm I'm sure you know this, probably not everyone knows this, the day that Musk took over officially, hate speech went up on the site almost immediately. Right. And he made it pretty clear that, quote, free speech is one of his goals. Um, And I think he's already learning some lessons on that. But Mm -hmm. he is not interested in heavy moderation. And I think a lot of people who use Twitter regularly already know that the reporting system for marginalized people and multiply marginalized people can be pretty iffy at best. Yeah. So a lot of people were already dealing with some amount of harassment. And if that goes way up, either for disabled people or chronically ill people, it could be ableism. Also could be anything because, again, it's people, multiply marginalized people face harassment on all kinds of fronts. So yeah. there's definitely a concern that it will just be unusable as a platform. Yeah, I mean, and speaking of Elon Musk, he bought Twitter for way more than the site is actually worth, right? So he's right now trying different ways to make it profitable, including this chaotic Twitter blue (laughs) rollout and then rollback. What Mm -hmm. concerns do you have, Brianne, about Twitter trying to monetize the platform in these new ways? Yeah, so the the Twitter blue thing already, which I'll just quickly say, so he was charging $8. They already had a paid product. And then he made it so that you could pay to appear verified. And he has already rolled that back because it was abused so much. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, when people are using it to talk about their health, this verification thing on its own, I really worry about how misinformation and disinformation, which are also already very prevalent on the platform, mm-hmm. could be spread even more easily. There's also just the question of what does it look like to monetize a platform that has always been free for users? So he keeps saying that he wants to charge people to post, kind of, or that he wants to bring in some kind of pay-to-play system. And I think I also worry that for sick people, chronically ill people, disabled people who are typically operating on a very tight budget as it is, like, they're not going to pay to participate in community. And so if people's reach is, like, if if nobody sees your tweets unless all of a sudden you're not in a community anymore, you're alone again. Yeah. So then, I mean, if, if that is the case, what would be next for you and for this NEIS void community? Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, I've always kind of assumed that something might happen with Twitter, even though that's our major platform, because we've seen it happen. Like Facebook, people used to have really vibrant community pages that yeah. lost their reach for monetization. So I've seen communities collapse before and have been trying to hedge against that. We do have server, which is a pretty popular app for creating like closed groups, basically. Um, so it's a little bit different, but we have over a thousand people have moved over there already. Oh, you're talking about Discord? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So, so we have done that, and I know a lot of other people who have large platforms on Twitter have also made Discord servers to try to keep their communities intact or give them another place to go. And then Mastodon is... I don't know how much you've heard about it, but it's an open source. I've been Twitter seeing some tweets about it. I, I don't totally get it, but I'm, but my team is educating me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it looks really similar, but it doesn't operate in a really similar way. So it doesn't really have the same scale as Twitter. It's kind of more smaller, chaotic communities. Some of them might be really welcoming. Some of them might not be. But I think a lot of people are making Mastodon accounts just so that they can find people if Twitter goes down all of mm -hmm. a sudden. So has jumping, you know, to, has jumping to Discord been successful for your community? Yes and no. We The Discord's existed for a while, and I started pointing people to it more often when Musk first put the offer in, because a lot of people were asking me at that time. They were like, what are we going to do if Musk succeeds in buying it? What are we going to do if it becomes inhospitable? We really want to plan for this. Um, and so every time I've promoted it, a few hundred people have jumped over. The reality is that because, like, it is successful, I would say, at connecting people, mm -hmm. but it is not successful at collecting people. So <laughs> the way that Twitter works is that it's really discoverable. And so if somebody posts something about chronic illness, for example, the first time, you know, like, I'm having this weird thing going on and I've never dealt with it before, because Twitter is so open it's really likely that somebody who does know more about chronic illness will see that and even point them to us. Yeah. I see that fairly often. But when you're in a Discord, you don't have that kind of natural serendipity where people who might be interested in your community are able to easily observe it and then kind of join it casually before jumping in. Sort of like you have to jump in, even if you don't post. Yeah. Well, we'll have to leave it there. We've been talking with Brianne Bennis, who discusses chronic illness on her podcast called No End in Sight, and she created the hashtag NEIS Void. Thank you, Brianne. Thank you so much. Let's turn now to another vibrant corner of the Internet, Black Twitter. We've laughed together. We've cried together. And many people credit Black Twitter as a key part of the platform's success. But what's next under the leadership of Elon Musk? With us is Keith Reed, co-host of the weekly news and culture podcast Run Tell This. He's also a contributing writer for The Root. Keith, we just heard from a chronic illness advocate about how she uses Twitter for community. How do you use Twitter? So I use Twitter first and foremost in my capacity as a journalist, and I kind of came to Twitter actually in that uh, in that space when I was a newspaper reporter, probably about a dozen years ago, maybe even a little bit longer. Uh, and Twitter was in its infancy. Uh, I ended up writing a story about how there there had been an, uh, a glitch that allowed many people to, many people's DMs to be viewed publicly, which clearly was a, was a big problem. Um, but then I kind of got drawn into it more and more, and, and, you know, really quickly it became apparent that this was a platform that was great for building community and a platform that was great for disseminating information and communicating with people in, in ways that wouldn't have been normal or natural right. uh, beforehand. Uh, and so since then, I've become a part of, you know, many running conversations, depending on where I was writing when I was at ESPN. Uh, and beyond uh, my time at ESPN, you know, being part of, you know, many sports conversations, uh, being a part of the black Twitter conversation and, and wherever that was going, um, you know, Twitter is great for uh, for sort of organically collating people uh, and getting them to, to talk about things that are happening in, in real time. And so that's been the way yeah. that I've used it primarily. Well, earlier this month, you also wrote about how mass layoffs at Twitter might impact diversity at the company and layoffs 
they seem ongoing, Keith. So how do you see that affecting diversity on the website itself? Uh, correct. So I actually had a conversation this morning with uh, with a friend and former colleague of mine who had gone to work at, at Twitter as a contractor uh, and found out that they had, had uh, recently lost their employment as, as of this weekend. Wow. One of the things that's happening uh, at Twitter and one of the things that, that had happened at Twitter is that the company was very intentional uh, – prior to Elon Musk take over about diversity and about bringing in people who mirrored the, the communities that had sprung up uh, on, on Twitter. And so what was happening behind the scenes was not only, you know, you, what we see often inside companies is that, you know, diversity functions or, or you know, issues that surround diversity are collated or, or, or kind of happen in these teams or with people who have positions that are specific to DEI. So you have a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or you might have a vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And that one job function sort of, you know, deals with anything that has to do with diversity inside the company. Twitter was doing something a little bit different, which was that they they had a diversity team inside the company, but, but also across many other job functions, whether it was advertising, sponsorship, content moderation uh, in particular, um, you know, all of those things had a diversity focus built into them somehow, and that was why diversity had been so intentional uh, and was so important to Twitter to Twitter as a company. With all of these layoffs, what do we know about the corporate world in general? To the extent that diversity is a priority in most corporations in the United States, when you start to see layoffs, that imperative is one of the first things to go. And there, therefore, to the extent that the hiring that you've done has focused around diversity, those people who have mm-hmm. been hired to, to handle those job functions tend to be among the first people to, to be laid off. I, um, I can't say specifically that that is what has happened inside Twitter, but what I do know is that to the extent that, that you know, the, the number of people, whatever X is, inside the company who had either explicitly or implicitly as part of their job mm-hmm. to to you know to either moderate conversations or to recruit or to you know help the company be better at managing its its various intersections with diverse conversations and with diverse people yeah. to the extent that that those people have now left the company or been forced out of the company that is, that will be deleterious to Twitter going forward as it falls into the hands or as it as as it has been bought by a person who we don't really necessarily know how much of an imperative diversity is right. to Elon Musk. We don't know how important it is it is to him. I, I know that you know what, what do we know about Doesn't Elon seem Musk? Very... He, does, he is a very wealthy white guy from from South Africa, right? Just demographically, um, that doesn't necessarily make him a bad person. It doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't. Um, that he that he does not care about diversity, but we don't really know right. much about his track record on diversity unless you look at what he's done inside Tesla, and that company has been sued a few times exactly. on the issue of, of discrimination at its various locations in the United States. So it's something to be concerned about. Yeah, here's, here's something that I've also been seeing people ask on Twitter. I'm seeing tweets like, you know, if we lose Twitter, does Black Lives Matter go away? Does our work to amplify LGBTQ issues just stop? And and I mean, I personally think the answer is no. Um, I do feel like people will have to take the fight elsewhere, right? Find other social spaces, Facebook, something else. What, what do you think, Keith? Where do you see Black Twitter headed? So, so. 
two parts to that question. I, I agree with you on the first part of the answer, which is that Black My, Black Lives Matter doesn't go away because Black Lives. What was Black Or what is Black Lives Matter? Black Lives Matter beyond being a hashtag or beyond being being an organization that's been mired in some controversy. But Black Lives Matter was just an extension of the long arc of social justice in this country and the protest movement that has always been ex- existed and been driven by marginalized people, in particular African Americans, in the United States. So to the extent that that conversation will continue, and it always has throughout the history of the country, Black Lives Matter will continue in some in some form. Will it continue to look or would it have looked the way it looked if it hadn't been for Twitter? Yeah. The answer to that is abs- is absolutely not, right? No. Um, Wesley Lowry, who was a co who's a co-host uh, on uh, the podcast, wrote his his book "They Can't Kill Us All" about his experiences covering the protest movement and covering Black Black Lives Matter in various cities around the country, starting starting with Ferguson. Talks about how organically the reporting around the movement happened and how organically these uh, these various protests sprung up and how and how so many of the names that we now know and associate with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and the broader movement against police violence and for social justice in this country were really enabled by the fact that you could, again, find these communities on, on Twitter and then amplify yeah. uh, a voice or amplify a message relatively easily. Without Twitter or with Twitter in a different form, whether that's because of a paywall or whether that's because people simply don't trust the content moderation or don't trust it as a platform anymore— would that look the same? It certainly wouldn't look yeah. the same. But then, so then you come to the next part of the question, which is where does where does it go? Is it Mastodon? Is it another platform that hasn't been invented yet? Is it a group of you know wealthy you know black? There's a there's a certain segment of wealthy and famous black entrepreneurs that has moved into the venture capital space over over the years. Yeah. There's been talk about whether or not any of those people will pick up the mantra and try to build a new build a new platform. But those things wouldn't be organic and wouldn't have grown in the same way that Twitter did, which was yeah. very much a a sort of uh, spontaneous mixture of, of of various things, people's familiarity uh, with uh, with you know, sort of generation one of social media, mm-hmm. uh, with the with the you know the various social justice uh, issues that were happening, with the prevalence of of police of videos of police violence ha- happening, and et cetera, et cetera. Those things all combined to make. Twitter or Black Twitter in that moment in the late, right. you know, the late half of the tw- well, 2010s well, you know, and into the early 2020s to make it what it was. And I'm not certain how you could recreate that intentionally because it didn't happen intentionally. Yeah. Black Twitter, I think, has also made it easier just for newsrooms to report on, on marginalized communities over the years, right? All you had to do was just keep an eye on that space, right? Watch maybe a couple of hashtags or look out for viral tweets and there you have your diverse or you have your black source right for for this story sure, sure absolutely and it made and it took away the excuse that many uh, that that many reporters might have had in the past about not knowing one and not knowing how to reach out to a particular space. I'd say that excuse as a journalist really never existed as a as a valid one because what do you do? You you know there's no news happening at your desk. I was taught you go out and you lay some you know some right. shoe leather and you you talk to people and you make phone yeah, calls. Yeah, this made for lazy reporting. Actually, might have not known how to to reach into certain communities. You could certainly have found that on Twitter, uh, and it, and it made reporting. The kind of reporting that wouldn't have happened before uh, those spaces existed, it uh, made it much easier to do. For sure. Well, what's next for you on social? Are you going to keep tweeting, Keith? 
I'm going to keep tweeting. Uh, I'm very careful about my about my tweeting, as all journalists should should learn to be. Um, but I'm going to keep twi- tweeting. I'm going to keep paying attention to the space. But I'm also going to keep monitoring what happens with Twitter as a company. We at the Root have talked about the different ways that we can cover uh, what happens with Black Twitter and what happens with the evolution of, of, of that space and that community as the Elon Musk saga plays out. So we'll uh, we'll be doing more about it in the coming weeks. That is Keith Reed, a contributing writer for The Root and a co-host of Run Tell This. Thank you so much for checking in with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. This episode of Reset was produced by Sarah Stark, and it was edited by Ethan Schwab. Enjoy what you're hearing? Then go ahead, hit that subscribe button. And when you subscribe, go ahead and leave us a rating, would you? It helps more people find us and supports the work that we do. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.